Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. After more than 40 years in journalism, Marty Barron is about to retire. Since 2013, he served as executive editor of The Washington Post. Shortly after his arrival, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos bought the paper. And since then, Barron has led a newsroom that has expanded, as many others have shrunk. Before the Post, Barron served as editor of the Boston Globe. He led the paper's Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage of sex abuse in the Catholic Church. The Globe's investigation was dramatized in the movie Spotlight, where Barron was portrayed by Liev Schreiber. Barron grew up in Tampa, the son of emigrants from Israel. He interned at the Tampa Tribune while in college and later worked as a reporter and editor at the Miami Herald. Barron talked with me about his Florida roots. He joined me last week via Skype from his home in Washington. Marty, starting off, you grew up here in Tampa, I know. Your parents were um, uh, immigrants from Israel. What do you know about how and why they chose, uh, chose Tampa to, uh, to live in when they came to the U.S.? Well, my parents, uh, uh, they left Israel in 1952 and they went to Paris for a couple of years. Uh, my father met somebody there who was from Florida and uh, they sort of established a quick relationship. My father was interested in coming to the United States, sort of the American dream sort of thing. And my father spoke a number of different languages. And this person happened to work in the citrus industry in Florida. And he said, well, if you uh, are able to get to the United States, I might be able to find a job for you or I can find a job for you. And so my father basically said, I'm coming. And he did. And he came to the States, went immediately initially to Orlando and then very quickly to Tampa, where the, there was a job for him uh, working for uh, a company called Seal Suite, which is a marketing cooperative for the citrus industry or was. And he started working for them in 1954 as soon as he arrived. What was the news uh, consumption environment like in your house growing up? It was pretty steady. Um, we had my, my parents were really interested in what was happening here in this country that they had come to. Uh, they, of course, were interested in what was happening around the world. So they stayed up on the news. So we got the local paper. We got Tampa Tribune. We got Time Magazine every single week. Watched uh, the national news at night, the Huntley Brinkley Report on NBC. Uh, we watched the local news. Uh, the NBC affiliate. And then they had other publications coming in. My father had publications that were related to his work. And uh, it was a pretty steady diet of, of news in our in our household. So you attended Berkeley Prep, and I know that you were the, uh, the editor of, of the paper there when you were in high school. And you've talked a little bit about some of the things you, you wrote and published in the paper might have uh, rubbed the administration the wrong way. What were some of the stories and things that you wrote in, in, in the paper that might have caught the eye of, of the school leadership? Uh, well, you've done your research. Um, <laughs> well, I would say that it generally, without getting into the specifics, which I don't know that I recall all the specifics, but it generally fell into the category of that I didn't exhibit sufficient school spirit uh, in what we were writing and whether the stories or editorials or things like that. So that did not make them happy. So from Berkeley, you went on to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Um, that's a pretty far, uh, far reach from Tampa. What made you choose uh, to go to school there? I wanted to get out of the South. I, I was really interested in just having a different experience and getting away and being on my own. And I'd applied to a number of different places and and I hadn't actually I hadn't actually visited the campus, but it seemed to have a number of the elements that I was interested in. And it worked out really well. It was a great school. I, I had a great time there and I was on the paper there as well. And you also uh, during the summers, you uh, you interned at the Tampa Tribune, correct? 
Correct. Uh, yeah, every summer that I was in college, I worked at the Tampa Tribune. So it was a great experience, about 10 weeks every summer. And, you know, they had me doing a lot of different things, pretty much everything, filling in for people on staff who um, were going on vacation during the summer. And so I would cover the cops, I'd cover the county commission, cover the city council, general assignment, even covered religion, business. I did, they had something called Action Line at the time, which was a, a column to sort of help consumers who were having difficulties with uh, companies or the government. Uh, you had to evaluate whether those were legitimate complaints or whether they were just using the publication to apply pressure on these on these enterprises. And so it was a great it was a great experience. And I did that for three summers. What was the newsroom like? It was great. You know, um, it was the newsroom was newsrooms of old. You know, there's some great characters in the newsroom and uh, some crusty characters and uh, people had been around a while. They knew the community really well. It was a great place to learn, and people were very uh, generous in in, uh, in teaching me what they knew. We have several Tribune alumni in our newsroom, including our news director, and uh, they all talk very fondly about the paper, and they were all um, pretty hurt when the, when the Tampa Bay Times bought it and shut it down. What were your feelings when you learned that, that the Tribune was uh, shutting down? I had a sense that it was inevitable. You could see it coming. Um, and... Uh, you know, I felt that not enough had been invested in the in the publication over the years, and and that it wasn't going to win the battle for Tampa Bay, uh, given how it it had been managed. So um, it was. I guess I was just resigned to it. Uh, I anticipated that, that would happen. So after college, uh, you came back to Florida and you worked in the the Martin County Bureau of uh, of the Miami Herald. How did you uh, How did you get that job? Uh, well, I started applying when I was in college. I just needed a job and uh, newspapers typically didn't come recruiting to college campuses and certainly not to Lehigh University. So I had to sort of reach out to them. The newspapers that I seemed to get the most interest from were those that were either in Pennsylvania, where I went to college, or in Florida, where I had grown up. So I had uh, three offers coming out of college. I had an offer to work for the Saint Peter- what was then the St. Petersburg Times. Um, for an internship of 10 weeks uh, with the possibility that I would get a full-time job out of it. I had an offer to return to the Tampa Tribune, a full-time job. Uh, and then I had an offer from the Miami Herald to work in uh, one of their bureaus in um, in Stewart in Martin County. And um, that was a full-time job as well. And I decided to take that. It was a small, Stewart then was uh, 12,000 people. The county itself was only 50,000 people. Uh, we published a, a page every, every six days a week for uh, for Martin County. And there was a lot, at that time, there was a tremendous amount of competition for um, that, um, that population. Uh, there were reporters there from the Miami Herald, which I was, I was one of the two reporters there for the Miami Herald. There were reporters from uh, the Sun Sentinel, there were reporters from the Palm Beach Post, reporters from, there was the local paper, the, the, the Stewart News. Uh, there were reporters there from Fort Pierce and there were reporters there from uh, Vero Beach. So um, it was an intensely competitive uh, space with a very small population. It was well covered, let's put it that way. So how did you try to kind of maybe carve out a, a space for yourself in terms of the stories that you could cover and, and report in the Herald? Uh, well, I was probably more sophisticated thinking than I than I could uh, than I can claim at the time. I just wanted to. I needed to produce. We needed to produce a page six days a week. Uh, take our own photographs. Write a column about what was happening over the weekend, which the answer was not much. But we had to find whatever it was. 
so and we tried to cover everything so we needed to cover uh, we needed to cover the uh, law enforcement we needed to cover the courts we needed to cover cover the county commission cover the city council and steward you name it whatever it was we had to write features so it wasn't really a matter of carving out a niche it was trying to be as comprehensive as we possibly could and find enough stories in a in a town of 12,000 people and a county of 50,000 people to fill uh, a page six out of seven days a week. So it sounds like you were pretty busy. I was totally busy. I remember when I, I was, I mean, I, I barely had any free time, uh, something I've become accustomed to over the years. And um, I remember there was a job candidate who applied and he said he wanted to talk to one of the reporters up there and he called me and he asked me what I did in my free time. And I said that I did my laundry. Um, <laughs> and I have to tell you that he did not take the job. Uh, and after that, they didn't want anybody to speak to me uh, before they decided whether or not to take that job. So, um, but that's pretty much what I did in my free time was do my laundry because I was working all the time. Stewart's a pretty small town too, so I imagine there's probably not a whole lot you could do in uh, in your free time anyway. It's not. It was a big story when they twinned the movie theater. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, at what point in your career did you decide you wanted to move from reporting to to more of a managerial role of being an editor? Well, I left the Miami Herald in 1979. They had they had brought me down down to Miami. I'd been a business reporter there. Uh, business reporting was beginning to take off at that at that time. It had not been much of a field of journalism prior to that. And I went out to the L.A. Times and uh, and then the L.A. Times uh, sent me to New York to cover Wall Street and finance and all of that. And so uh, I was working in New York. I was very happy there. I liked what I was doing. I didn't have any intention of becoming an editor, but uh, one of the top editors in the business section was hired back to the Wall Street Journal, later became the top editor of the Wall Street Journal. And so they had they had asked somebody else to come. Uh, and take that job, my boss in New York, uh, but she had just given birth to her first child and was not ready to do so. They asked me to come out and fill in, and I guess they were happy with what I did. And ultimately, some months later, they decided to make me a business editor at a very young age, at the age of 29. And uh, it was really the second ranked position in that department at that time, it later became the top ranked position. And it just kind of happened before I expected it to, but I had always thought that I would want to become an editor because I'd been an editor of my high school paper. I'd been an editor of my college paper. I, so I liked it. I liked the experience. I liked having some influence over the wide range of things that we did. And so I was interested in doing it at some point, uh, but it happened sooner than I expected. At 29, did you, um, did you run into any pushback from older reporters who, who had to uh, report to someone who was younger than them? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, it was a bit of a shock to some people in the department that I was named the business editor at that time uh, because they were more, they were older and more experienced than I was. And uh, so that was something that I had to learn how to do. That was probably my first uh, management challenge was uh, try to think, trying to figure out how to manage people who were older than I was. Who were your mentors? And as you were moving into this editor side of your career, who kind of helped guide you as you were moving into this new world? Well, I'm not sure I had mentors at the LA Times at, the, at, at that point. I, I felt very much, you know, on my own, but my boss was John Lawrence and he was helpful uh, in that job. Um, I had, you know, over time, Paul Steiger, who, whose position I uh, was hired into as business editor, he later became the top editor of the Wall Street Journal and was the founder of ProPublica, the investigative uh, media outlet. And 
he was a, a mentor while I was a reporter there, probably my most direct editor. And then I had mentors uh, of one sort or another over the course of my career. But I was pretty much on my own in that job. How did that feel? Uh, I had to learn a lot. I mean, I frankly, I didn't really know what management and leadership was all about at the time. And I, I had to figure it out. I mean, when you're a reporter, you have a byline on a story. You're responsible for your own work. And I understood what the responsibilities were and what the expectations were. But as a manager, it's uh, it's uh, it's unclear sometimes. And you can finish the week and you feel exhausted at the end of the week. And you try to think back on what you accomplished and you can't remember what you did, except that you're completely exhausted. So I had to figure out what management really meant. And um, I sort of worked to do that and ultimately figured it out. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We'll continue our conversation with Washington Post executive editor Marty Barron in a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. This week, I'm talking to Marty Barron, Tampa native and executive editor of The Washington Post. He's retiring from the paper at the end of this month. So eventually you come back to to Florida to an editor position at the Miami Herald. This would have been, what, the late 90s? No, 2000, beginning of 2000. 2000, okay. So this was 2000. What uh, What was the Miami Herald like then? versus when you uh, worked there in the 70s? It was a lot alike, actually. Uh, It was a more diverse newsroom than the one that I had experienced 20 years earlier. But it still had the, you know, the great feel of a a metro newspaper was still very energetic, you know, aggressive in its news coverage, investigative oriented, used to covering uh, the kinds of big stories that occur in South Florida. And uh, some of the same people were still there, uh, actually, 20 years later. So it felt quite familiar, but Miami had changed dramatically. Obviously, uh, this had already started when I was there as a reporter, but obviously the immigration from Cuba had made a huge difference in the, in the demographics of, of the city. And uh, But by the time I returned 20 years later, it, it, that immigration, that those waves of immigration had very much defined what the city had become. So the city was very different and the newsroom was more diverse, maybe not diverse enough for the community but it was more diverse than it had been when I was uh, first there. Well, you mentioned uh, the, the Cuban community, and, and one of the major stories that broke uh, during your time at the Herald, of course, was uh, was the Elian Gonzalez case and his eventual return to Cuba. For for you leading the coverage of that story, what was what were some of the challenges that you faced in, in reporting on that? Yeah, it broke just before I got there, actually. Elian Gonzalez was picked up at sea. You know, his mother died, taking him out of Cuba. She uh, drowned at sea. But he survived and was um, put in the custody of relatives of his in Miami. It was a very emotional story. It had already become very emotional by the time I got there and only became more so during my time at the time at the Herald. Uh, Many people in the Cuban community, you know, were dead set on him staying uh, in Miami because they felt that uh, it's as if somebody had been thrown over the Berlin Wall. And now you were asking to have this boy thrown back and he had acquired the opportunity to live in a free country and you would be sending him back to one that that was not free. At the same time, there were many people in the community, particularly those who were not Cuban-American, so-called Anglos, who uh, felt that, look, his father is still in Cuba. His father wants him back. Uh, Family is everything. um, And that's his closest family and that he should be returned to his, his father. 
and so the tensions within the community were were intense um and we were in the middle of that and uh i was in the middle of that and some of those tensions found their way into our own newsroom in terms of uh how how that story should be covered so from there you go to the boston uh, globe and of course the thing that uh from your time there that everyone knows is uh the uh, spotlight team's investigation into sex abuse in, in the catholic church the thing i'm curious about though for you going to boston because you've talked about previously that you know you you didn't have any connections to this community you didn't really know anybody there when you uh, went to work at the globe and i'm curious how difficult was it for you being kind of an outsider in a very insular city just getting getting the, the people in the newsroom to trust you and also getting people in the wider community to, to, to trust you as well? Uh, well, it was quite difficult, actually. I was uh, designated as an outsider. Uh, you know, when I first got to Boston and I would speak before various groups, uh, they, I was often asked, how, is, how, is, how do you think Boston is different from the other places you've worked? And I said, well, uh, when I came to Boston, uh, I was immediately called an outsider and in the other places, when I was new there, they called me a newcomer. And so vocabulary tells you a little bit uh, about a place or can tell you a lot. Uh, so it was it was awkward. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I worked hard to get around the city and meet the people I needed to meet immediately. So for the first six months, I had breakfast, lunch and dinner with uh, key uh, figures in the community, whether in the business community or uh, people who are involved in government or people who are involved in the community affairs, you name it, in religion as well. And then in the newsroom, you know, it was kind of things happened pretty quickly. We did launch that investigation uh, on the first day that I was there. It sort of arose the first I brought it up at the first meeting uh, as portrayed in that movie. And uh, but then other news developed very quickly. Six weeks after I got to Boston, we had 9-11. And as you know, two of those planes flew out of Boston. So it was a national tragedy. Uh, uh, so we would cover it for that reason. But also it had dramatic impact on on Boston, uh, there were many Bostonians who were killed in those planes, and so, and then we had anthrax, uh, the anthrax scare after after uh, 9/11, and then we were immediately into a war. We were into, you know, uh, the war in Afghanistan, and we, at the time, were deploying people to Afghanistan. We had about a dozen people who were covering that that war, uh, one aspect or another, and then we were right into the war in Iraq. So um, ultimately, you know, people just the news kind of took over and uh, people started to pay more attention to how to cover the news than the fact that they had a new editor. How do you think you changed that newsroom? I, know, I remember there's a line in Spotlight, and I'm paraphrasing it here, where where you or Lee Schreiber, as you says something like, "We want to be, we want to make the paper essential to our readers." How do you think? I mean, the Spotlight investigation on on sex abuse was one example of that. Can you think of other ways that maybe maybe you changed the focus of the paper to to kind of reflect that idea? I'm not sure I changed the focus of the paper. I mean, I think I accentuated the existing focus of the paper, which was to. Uh, make sure that we were doing a really good job of covering our community uh, and things that mattered to our community. And and so, and I, I've always felt that investigative journalism and accountability journalism, as we call it more broadly, is really important to uh, a publication. And so, and I was coming out of, uh, coming out of the Miami Herald, which had a long history of that. Uh, the Globe had too, but uh, there were some stories that needed to be done that uh, hadn't been done. And so, you know, I hope that I, you know, what I did was just try to provide sharper focus 
to what we were doing and how to accomplish our mission. And also uh, some outside perspective that I think was helpful. And even in terms of hiring on the staff, that we would not just hire from within Boston, that we would hire from outside so that we would get the fresh perspectives and also have, a, by the way, a more diverse, uh, more diverse newsroom. And so about 50% of our hires uh, in the Globe newsroom were coming from outside the community. So from the Globe, you go to the to the Post, and just a couple of months after you started there is when the Graham family uh, announced that they were selling the paper to Jeff Bezos. What was your reaction when you heard that news? Yeah, it was about six months after I got there. I started at, right at the beginning of uh, 2013, and about six months later, uh, they announced that they were selling uh, the Washington Post to uh, to Jeff Bezos. It was a shock for me, it's not something I ever anticipated. In fact, when I went to, to Washington, um, at the time, the New York Times company had been considering selling the Globe, and I remember telling colleagues that one thing you can be sure of is that the Washington Post company will not be selling the Washington Post. Um, and lo and behold, the Washington Post company, uh, which had other properties, was selling the Washington Post. So I was shocked. At the same time, I thought that it, it could be a good thing because uh, our industry really needed some fresh thinking. Uh, we were all doing the same thing. We were all on a, on a downward path. Uh, we were we were running out of ideas for how to uh, extract ourselves from the path that we were on, and so I thought, you know, here's a person who um, who's going to think long term, who is committed to growth. Uh, he's not going to be there just to figure out how to shrink the Washington Post. He's going to figure out how to grow it. He's a person who has expertise in technology, which. Uh, is a huge part of our business these days and where we needed more expertise. And also he knows a lot about consumer behavior. He runs a gigantic consumer business and we are in a consumer business. So uh, my thought at the time was that this could be a really good thing. It was likely to be a good thing for the Washington Post as much as I revered the, the Graham family and all that they had, comp had accomplished at the Post over 80 years of ownership. But I thought that it could be a good thing for the Post. I did not know if it was going to be a good thing for me, however, uh, because obviously a new owner is entitled to hire whoever he wants, right. to be a new editor or a new publisher and whoever, all the other positions in the senior, senior ranks of a news organization. So I didn't really know what it meant for me, um, and, but I, did, I, was, I was quite confident that it would be good for the Post. We needed, we needed that fresh thinking. What do you think has been the biggest change that you've been able to make with Jeff Bezos' investment in the paper? Well, immediately he changed our strategy. Uh, we had been a publication that was focused on our region, uh, on D.C., on Maryland, Virginia, that metro region, and increasingly so. So the paper was, uh, uh, I say paper, I really mean a media outlet because we're much more than a paper these days. Right. Uh, but we were we were pulling back from, you know, we were cutting foreign bureaus, we were cutting, we had cut our national presence, we had cut a number of different beats um, and trying to sort of sharply focus on the metro region. And that was the strategy at the time. And when, when Jeff Bezos came in, he said quite clearly in our very first meeting, that he felt that that was a good strategy for the past, but it wasn't a good strategy for the future uh, because the, the the model, it wasn't clear what the model is for local journalism, but we had an opportunity to become national and even international uh, and that we should take that path because we were situated in the nation's capital, which is a good place to have a national publication. We had the name, the Washington Post, which is a name that can be leveraged to a national and international level. Uh, and we had a history and tradition of shining a light in dark corners 
going back to Watergate that helped define define our identity. And so the internet, as you pointed out, the internet had had caused us a lot of pain. It had crushed every pillar of our business uh, in terms of, you know, our sources of revenue. Uh, but the internet had also given us a gift, and the gift was a worldwide distribution at virtually no additional cost. Uh, it costs almost nothing to add a, a reader uh, as opposed to print where you have to deliver the paper to another house and print it. But online, uh, there's virtually no incremental cost to increasing the distribution of your uh, product. It's not exactly zero, but it is close to zero. So uh, he said, why are we taking the pain and we're not taking the gift? We're in a position to take the gift because of our position in Washington, our name of the Washington Post, and this history and tradition that we have here of uh, shining a light in dark corners, and that defines who we are. So we have the Washington Post that has a, uh, a billionaire owner. We have uh, similar, we've seen uh, the Boston Globe has a local owner, the uh, Star Tribune in Minneapolis, the Los Angeles Times, where these owners have been able to come in and make significant investments in the newsrooms. And at the same time, we have lots more papers that are having to still having to make cuts, and and uh, even even during the the pandemic, what do you think is the answer for for papers that maybe necessarily don't have uh, have an owner like Jeff Bezos who can make those investments? What what's is is there a solution for smaller papers or papers that are owned by some of these larger companies in terms of how they can uh, find a sustainable way to survive? Well, uh, I think there is a solution. It's not easy. Their challenge, their challenge is greater than ours, actually, because we have the opportunity to gain scale through national and international distribution. And what we write about animates people more than uh, than what local newspapers tend to write about. So if you're writing about Donald Trump, it gets people really, you know, they're intensely interested in, interested in that. And, um, you know, while they may be interested in local news, they're not as interested in local news as they are in what's happening at the national level. That said, I think that there is a there is an opportunity. Uh, I do think, you know, that local news organizations have to charge. Uh, they can't give away their product for free. Uh, I think it's important to remember that in the old days when we just had a newspaper, we didn't give the product away for free. We actually charged for it. And there's no reason why in the Internet era. Uh, we should be giving our product away for free. If people want this coverage, then if they want high quality coverage, they have to they have to pay for it. And frankly, that's the only way that these institutions can survive. It's the only way that they can afford to uh, invest in the in the in high quality coverage. Uh, so uh, that has to be done. But the the other end of the bargain is that these publications have to provide quality coverage. They have to invest sufficiently so that there's something of value for people to support. If they are not investing in the product, if they're not providing quality coverage, then consumers are not going to dip their hands in their pocket and pay for it uh, because they don't feel there's anything they're worth paying for. Uh, last question. What are you looking forward to in retirement? Well, immediately I'm looking forward to some more rest and freedom and you know, personal liberty and personal time and all of that. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'll just uh, I'll, I'll take some time to, to think about it. There are any number of options out there, thankfully, but I don't plan to do anything full time. Uh, I would I'm not entirely sure uh, yet, but I think I have time to, to think about it. And actually, I did have one more question. Some folks, uh, my colleagues are curious, since you worked in Tampa and Miami, if you have any thoughts on the, uh, the Cuban sandwich debate. Oh, who has a better Cuban sandwich? Yeah. Well, Tampa does. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, there's, just no, there's just no competition. Seriously. Uh, I never found a Cuban sandwich that was as good as the Cuban sandwiches I got in Tampa. Good to know. 
Well, Marty Barron, it's been a pleasure uh, uh, chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. That's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. If you missed part of this conversation or want to listen again, subscribe to our podcast or go to WUSFnews.org. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening.